pleasure to be here. And, and I have to admit that giving talks at the weekend university is one of my favorite uh, types of lecturing because it's full of people who are kind of choosing to be here. And, and I can see the difference now when I'm lecturing at university that it's not always the case. Um, true, there is some truth to it. So, so I always like to start my talk with a little warm-up. Um, raise your hands if you attended my seminars, workshops, lectures in the past, so, so you know what's coming. So I like to kind of get people moving. I know you don't have that much space, so be a little bit mindful. Don't, don't bump into each other. So do it as kind of uh, as, as, as careful as you like. Um, I'm just thinking maybe, I, I have a two kinds of warm-up. So one is physical and one is social. Raise your hands if you would prefer physical. Raise your hands if you would prefer social. I think there was more physical. So I'll ask you all to stand up. <laughs> Oh, wow. It's quite a few of you. So this is going to be ridiculous, guys, okay? So you don't expect anything really, like, profound. This is a song and dance made by me, okay? So it's like, it's, it's, not, it's nothing to kind of, too much to expect. But the whole point is for us to move a little bit and to freshen us, ourselves a little bit. Later on, you'll find why we did it as we did it. Okay? So we're going to do, as in a Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, British Army training, I'll sing a line and do certain actions, and you'll do it as synchronized as possible, okay? Okay? We all came here to learn about brain. It's okay. It's all right. We're walking, walking. Run a little bit. Run faster. Run even faster. Run as fast as you can. Jump up high. Squat down low. Shake your shoulders. Shake your booty. Jump on the right. Jump on the left. Uh, handshake one neighbor. And, and give a big, big hug to another neighbor. And grab a seat. Villain. Okay, so later on we'll learn why did we did that jumping, why, why was exercise silly, and, and why did we cuddle each other, okay? And once you learn, you can go and cuddle your neighbor more if you like, just, just try to be a bit of appropriate. Some people, you know, complain about it. Um, so, the point of this lecture is for us to find the neuroscience answer on this dilemma. Raise your hands if you ever recycled New Year's resolutions. Right? So, so my goal in 2020 is to accomplish the goals I set in 2019, which I should have done in 2018, because I made a promise in 2017, which I planned in 2015. Right? So a lot of times we end up um, having really kind of really, really clear ideas how we want things to be. We start with a big enthusiasm and motivation and we say, this year is going to be different. And in general, we pump ourselves up full of energy, full of motivation, we're going to change this and that and that and that. Our life is going to be very, very different. To cut the long story short, 
What happens a month down the line? A lot of us fall back to the old habits. So in this, in this lecture today, we'll look at actually why, what's needed for us to change. What's needed for us to create a, a, a change in our behavior? And what are, the, what are the conditions needed for the brain to change? And in particular, for the brain to create a lasting change. We'll look at five, five different stages um, of change. Just a second, I just have to bear. Is that okay now? I'm kind of have three devices on me at the moment. Is it, is it working? Cool. Uh, we'll look at the five stages we need to go through in order for the change to last. And that's the last word is, is the key, lasting change. That's, that's what's tricky to achieve. And that's why we need to go through quite a few different stages to create a, a lasting change in the brain. And, and, and last but not least, we look at why do we get stuck in certain of those uh, stages and how to get unstuck and transit between those stages. At the end, I'll be, I'll be ready to take your questions and, and we could you know, engage in debate, but I, I will suggest that you make a note if you have a question during the talk and keep the question for, for that time. So in order for us to create a change, uh, we, our brain needs to change first. And that's why we need to start with neuroplasticity. What is how does the brain work? And what is needed for our brain to change? So first of all, as you can see, brain is quite an ugly organ. I actually have, have a model of the brain here, which I'm happy to send around. This is a real size human brain, by the way. A child's brain, about five-year-old child's brain, is very similar size. It doesn't change as much since then. I'll send it around, but then I'll, I'll ask for it back at the, at the end of it. You can split it in two parts if you like. By the way, I noticed that you, you have Ian McGilchrist on the consciousness uh, workshop, so he talks a lot about right and left brain hemispheres. He's brilliant in terms of that. It's really, really good work. Uh, so brain consists of many, many different parts. And each of those parts is responsible for different function. So right now, for you to understand this lecture, you need the frontal lobes in order to analyze and understand the concepts of what we're talking, specifically, you know, abstract thinking. If you kind of have an urge to shout at me, you can suppress it using the very, very front of your brain. And you can control your actions and you can have willpower. Also, you can control your attention to specific things using the very, very front of the brain also called frontal lobes or prefrontal cortex to be more specific. In order to see the slides, you're using the brain area at the back called occipital lobes or visual cortex in order to kind of analyze what's visually what's on the slides. In order to hear what I'm saying, you're using this area in green, temporal lobes, right next to your temples as the name implies, which enables you both to hear what I'm saying and to analyze and understand the verbal language. In order to read the slides, you're using the area at the top in yellow uh, called the parietal lobes. Uh, and also, you're using this area you know, to feel the temperature of the room, to kind of feel, to feel the hug when you cuddled each other. So all of these areas and many, many more are all in action while you're just sitting here and, and watching this lecture. And they all have to work together in a really well-timed timed manner in order to, to function well. If you were to damage any of those areas, the effects of it, the consequences will depend on which area you damaged. And perhaps most of you know of this really, really 
famous case of Phineas Gage. This is one of the first cases to show that so-called brain specificity, how specific function of different areas was. So Phineas Gage was a really lovely man. He was a manager at the railway company. He was married, had children, and he, everybody liked him. He was a really funny guy, really reliable, really good manager to his team. And back then, they used, they used quite, you know, they, they all were quite involved in doing a physical, uh, is it, it's working okay? <laughs> Uh, back then, they used to be quite involved when they were exploding the rocks in creating the, um, the kind of new paths for the railways. So what they used to do, they used to use this big metal rod to make a big hole in the, in the ground and uh, fill it with explosives and use the same metal to stuff it up. But of course, we all know what happens if we hit metal to the rock, right? It creates heat and heat can trigger the explosion. So unfortunately, that's what happened to Phineas. Um, so him being like really hands-on and really a good team, team player, unfortunately backfired on him, literally. So when he was stuffing the explosives, explosion happened, and this metal rod flew up in the air, crossed his jaw, crossed his eye, and got out at the top of his head. You know, needless to say, it was highly unpleasant for Phineas. <laughs> but to everyone's surprise, he didn't die. In fact, he was on his own there. So he stood up, he walked to the hospital about five miles, he administered himself to the hospital, and he even started shouting at the doctors. And people were amazed. They, were, they said it was a miracle of God that he survived. But soon they realized that he was no longer the person he used to be. They, they took this uh, metal rod successfully out of his brain, and he was relatively healthy after that. But his personality changed dramatically. He became really, really impulsive, and he couldn't suppress his urges. He couldn't focus on one task for a long period of time. He kept switching. He was really, really quick to aggression and anger, and he became highly promiscuous. And, and, you know, his wife kicked him out. So right now, Phineas was here. If he got angry at one of you, he would just go straight to you and try to punch you. Or if he liked you quite a lot, he'll try to do something else. <laughs> so unfortunately, he became quite a nuisance. And that was to do with the damage to his very, very front of the brain, the smartest area of our brain called prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for us planning our actions, suppressing our urges, uh, having willpower, having kind of personality, because our crucial centers of personality are there as well. Uh, of course, there is many, many more areas to the brain. And, and, and this is like, to, to make the matters a little bit more simple, we can group all of those areas into three major classes. So the oldest areas we group into so-called lizard brain. And as the name implies, the reptiles, such as lizards, have very, very similar areas of the brain responsible for similar functions. A bit more evolved and more kind of advanced areas, we group into the mammal brain. And as the name implies, dogs, cats, cows have the very, very similar areas as well. And often those areas are studied in rodents uh, to understand how they function. And the most advanced 
areas, such as prefrontal cortex I just mentioned now, which are responsible for, for analytical thinking and doing all the kind of advanced functions we're capable of, we can regroup into neocortex or the human brain. I know it can be quite confusing, human brain within the human brain, but I, I quite like calling it neocortex for that reason. Now, those three, three compartments of the brain, they kind of have different agenda for our life. Lizard brain only cares to keep you alive. It doesn't care about anything else, about your dreams, about your aspirations. It doesn't give a shit. So it only wants to make sure that you, you get enough food, that you leave the offsprings, that your heart is be, be, be beating, and that you digest your food. So it really takes care of those kind of essentials. Mammal brain, also called the limbic system, wants you to be safe. It wants you to survive, and it wants your family and the people who are important to you to survive as well. And whenever mammal brain detects something that could danger, endanger the survival, it creates emotions, emotions we usually hate, such as anxiety, fear, anger, to kind of create the behaviors to stay away from danger. So, so mammal brain doesn't quite care about you growing and developing and, and changing. In fact, it absolutely hates change. It only wants you to do familiar things so you stay safe. Because mammal brain believes if you survived up till now doing the things you have been doing, you're probably better off doing the same thing because it assumes that the environment doesn't change, which is, of course, not, not, not true in many cases. Mammal brain is the brain area to thank for, for having memories and being able to remember all the wonderful and, you know, not so wonderful past experiences. But also mammal brain enables us to create habits which save time, they save energy, and enable us just to do multiple things all at once. Mammal brain is quite a selfish area. It mainly cares about survival of you and also about, you know, kind of safety and survival of your offsprings in particular. Human brain, or neocortex, is the only area in your brain which can change. The only area of your brain which cares about you being your best self, about you reaching your full potential, about you thinking rationally what's the best for you, about you having empathy for others, and about being able to so-called mentalize or understand other people's states and other people's way of thinking. Mammal brain, when we're in a mammal brain dominant thinking, we assume everybody is like us. Or if they aren't like us, we think they should be like us. Now, in human brain dominant thinking, we, we can understand the differences, we can accept the differences, and in fact, we can you know, learn from others. Uh, we, in order to make smart, rational decisions, we use, we use the uh, uh, human brain as well uh, to collaborate, to feel empathy, and truly, truly care for other people that, that these areas are needed as well. Creativity uh, and functions like that also originate, originate in the human brain. Now, within all of those areas, there is multiple cells called neurons. So in order for those areas to function well and do their job, it's actually those tiny cells that make things happen. And those areas consist of millions of those cells. So neurons, you know, there is enormous amount of neurons in the brain. As you can see, 86 billion, there was a huge debate. Is it 100 billion or 86 billion? You know, whichever way, it's loads of them. Really enormous number of them. I know it sounds like a, not such a big difference, but actually it is quite a big difference between 86 and 100 billion neurons. 
And these brain cells have, they contain information, and they share information with one another. They communicate via small electrical currents called nerve impulses. However, when they, in the connection between neurons, there is a little gap, and that gap called synapse, electricity can't jump through the gap. So they need chemicals called neurotransmitters. And whenever we talk about moods, emotions, mental well-being, we often talk about neurotransmitters. It's not the topic today, but I've spoken in one of the weekend universities about emotions, why actually neurotransmitters are a crucial, crucial uh, component to discuss. All of those neurons connect with one another to, to form the, 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 the networks called neural networks. And in the brain, each network has a specific function. So right now, to actually have, uh, to focus on the slides and try to understand the lecture, you're activating so-called task-positive network. To daydream and connect to your neighbor and feel like kind of, you know, warm, warm connection between you, you're using so-called default mode network. In order to drive a car, you're using driving a car network. So here in this, in this picture, for example, different networks can be portrayed in different colors. And in the brain, there is loads and loads of those networks enabling us wide range of actions and wide range of skills and memories and emotions. So in other words, we can't do anything unless we, we have created the network to enable us to do that activity. So in the brain, things, I know that although the brain is quite a mysterious organ, things are quite mechanical in, in, in the sense that we have to create a network to do specific tasks. Now, as we practice the task more and more and more, the networks get stronger and stronger and stronger with repetition. So time doesn't make things change. Repetition does. I heard the really good statement, you know, the, the time doesn't heal the, the past trauma, experiences do. And that's quite the case with the, with the brain, how the brain functions. With the repetition and doing things a different way, we create new networks. And by repeating them over and over and over again, we strengthen them. Brain networks, which we use most frequently, become so strong that we can call them uh, brain highways. It just means that our kind of brain goes there by default. So imagine, raise your hands if you're a proficient car driver. If you've been driving for ages and you can do it without even thinking, okay? So lucky you. Uh, you, you have really, really strong brain highway for driving a car. Now, if anybody was to sit in a car with me, I wouldn't allow you to talk. I wouldn't allow you to put the music on, and you would not be allowed to ask me any questions. Okay? The reason being, I don't have such a strong brain highway for driving a car. And it takes full focus and full concentration and loads of areas of the neocortex or human brain in order for me to execute the task successfully. For people who've been driving for ages and ages and ages, mammal brain, or especially areas called basal ganglia, take over the function and make it much more automatic and much less energy consuming, which we'll learn a little bit later why that, that happens. And you're much better and faster to make decisions uh, to do that. The same happens with emotions. The emotions we feel more and more frequently become almost our part of personality. For example, raise your hands if you used to be much more optimistic and over the years you became much more pessimistic and skeptical. Let's be honest, okay, let's be honest. 
Now raise your hands if you, if you kind of um, used to be able to focus on reading a book. Uh, as a child, for example, you're really good at just reading a book and going through loads of, loads of material, and now you really struggle to finish even one page, right? So the same, the same mechanism happens. If, you if we constantly keep switching our attention, it becomes harder and harder to focus on one thing. But if we keep on training our attention to focus on one thing, it gets better again. Because those networks are plastic, and the networks keep changing uh, with, with experience based on what we do most frequently. So when we talk about neuroplasticity, we mean quite a few different things. So first of all, we mean that the networks we use more frequently get stronger. Also, it means that we can form new networks and existing neurons, they kind of can connect in different, different uh, configurations to enable us different function. Also, it means that actually the networks we don't use, they die off. They get weaker and weaker over time. Perfect example could be learning the language. Has any of you learned foreign language at school? Now, how many of you have forgotten it and can't speak it fluently anymore, right? So that's that's perfect example of brain plasticity. It's a very, very normal mechanism. For, it's basically your brain says, it seems that you don't, don't need that because to maintain each of those networks requires a lot of energy. And I'm not wasting energy on the things which are not needed anymore. But the same th happens with the memories which are no longer relevant. We move on and we forget things. Forgetting is a very, very crucial function of the brain. It's not a dysfunction. In some cases, of course, it's dysfunction. But most of the time, it's just a normal, normal way for the brain to say, you know what? It seems that you don't need that information anymore. I need to free space for new memories and new experiences. Also, uh, unused neurons can die if they are not needed anymore. That's not very frequent, but it in particular happens if there is any, any kind of damage going on in the brain. But quite, quite a quite novel and um, re quite recently discovered mechanism is that also we can get new cells in the brain. For a long time it was thought that that's, that's not possible for adults, that that only happens for children. And the reason being, Scientists thought that because the brain size doesn't seem to change since we are children. But apparently, a lot, uh, you know, it's a lot more complex than that, that we can get new cells in the brain. And one of the first evidences in humans, so first evidence in animals was when we had, a scientist had rodents. It was a similar um, time. It was, I think, 1999 or 2001. In that period, scientists who were studying rodents they compared the brains of rodents who were in really, really boring environments. You know, they were on their own in basically empty room with the brains of rodents who, were, who had basically like a playground there. They had a lot of things to engage in. They had a lot of mates to play with. And they found that in those rodents in so-called enriched environment, they had new cells being born. And they were excited, but they thought there is no way it's ha it happens for humans. But now, we now know that that's not true. In fact, this study, then actually in London, is a very famous study and quite an old study, but it was the first study to show that that can happen in humans as well. So the way it was initially shown that Eleanor Maguire, really wonderful scientist in Queen Square in London, she was interested in navigation, as, as I was in my, during my PhD. And she said, you know what? How about we compare the size of the brain structure crucial for navigation and memory, called hippocampus, 
in bus drivers and black cab drivers. Because being a black cab driver is much, much harder. You have to learn so many rules, especially in London, right? They have to go through really rigorous training. And we see whether the hippocampi are same size or different size. What do you think they found? Of course, black cab drivers, hippocampi were much, much larger. And then Elena was thinking, you know what? But that still doesn't rule out. Maybe the ones who have bigger hippocampus, hence are better at navigation, just become a black cab drivers, and the ones who, whose that area is not working as well have no other choice but become a bus driver, right? <laughs> so what, she, what they did, it's, it's logical, isn't it? What they did, they actually tracked uh, people who were doing the knowledge training to become a black cab driver. As you can see, it requires, this is the, the kind of the, the, you know, the, what it takes to become black cab driver. You need to learn enormous amounts of routes, enormous amounts of objects, so you actually are going through really, really intense training. And once when I was like, um, when I took black cab, I was uh, uh, running late for the train, and I was chatting to this black cab driver. He's done a PhD in physics. He's raised three children. And he said, going through this knowledge training was the hardest thing he has ever done in his life. So you know, if you ever want a real challenge for your brain, do that. For me, it wouldn't be very possible with my driving skills. Although, having driven with some black cab drivers, I think maybe it would be still possible. So they have to, to kind of really go through boot camp for the hippocampus. They really have to, have to kind of train it really, really hard. And what Eleanor found, that actually, to, to her, everyone's surprise, that the brain changed in, in three years, it changed dramatically. But only and only for people who successfully passed the exam. For people who didn't learn enough to pass the exam, it didn't change. And you can see that here. So this is the kind of the difference between the, before the training and after training. As you can see, there is a big increase in size of that, that area of the brain. And for people who have not qualified, it hasn't changed much. And in, these are controls for people who didn't go through training. So she just scanned the brains, you know, at one point and then three years later, just to see whether just naturally brain keeps on changing randomly. So this was one of the first times when it, the so-called activity-dependent plasticity was, was shown in humans. The brain changes in quite short space of time if only we keep on doing things over and over again. Now we know that that, that happens when we learn new instrument, to play a new instrument, when we learn new language, when we expose to a lot of new information. Brain, brain plasticity happens, especially in hippocampus. Hippocampus is the area where there is uh, one of the few areas in the brain where new cells can be born. One of the crucial components for us to have plastic brains is the molecule called BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. This molecule is crucial for plasticity. And, and the, one of the... Um, Key functions is for, for that molecule enable the neurons and connections to survive. Because in the brain, when the child's brain is developing, there is loads and loads of connections. That's called hyperconnectivity. Everything basically is connected with everything. And only the connections where there is BDNF, they survive. Other connections die off. And that's called pruning. 
Now, the risk conditions in the brain where that pruning doesn't happen successfully, and that happens in autism, when the brain stays hyperconnected, and it unfortunately leads to the, the big overwhelm of the brain with the, with the world and the, with the stimulation. BDNF in adults' brain is crucial for memory, for constant learning, and for us being able to change the existing networks as well. For higher cognitive functions, such as you know, good performance, productivity, prioritizing, we need BDNF as well, because we need constantly changing plastic, plastic networks. BDNF increases when we're exposed to a lot of information. But most interestingly, BDNF also increases when we are actually doing physical exercise. But only, and only if we actually are enjoying that exercise. <laughs> True. So this has been shown in rodents, as you can see those, those two happy mice running on the treadmill. So the ones who were doing no exercise, they had the same amounts of BDNF before and after that kind of training protocol. The ones who were forced to exercise but didn't want to exercise didn't have any increase in BDNF either. And only the ones who were voluntarily running about and really enjoying and having a great time, they increased in BDNF to the great extent. And, and we assume that that happens in humans as well. We don't have direct way to measure. We can't just you know, take your brains out, measure it as directly. We can measure indirectly. Um, afterwards, but, but uh, it's, it's kind of, it's crucial component is doing the exercise which feels good to you. And we all have different exercises. For somebody, gardening feels amazing. Well, for somebody, you know, rock climbing or cycling or running or walking in the nature feels the best kind of exercise. So what we know, that we know that actually brain is plastic and it, it, it stays that way throughout the life. Of course, the plasticity is the highest and effortless during the childhood, we, you know, but that still, we have, we, we, we have quite a good plasticity throughout the life. However, plasticity is a plastic process, which means that depending on what you do, you'll have more brain plasticity or less. If you're sitting at home doing exactly the same thing, your brain plasticity will be reduced because your brain says, you know what? You don't need that. I'm not wasting those huge resources on keeping your brain plastic and constantly learning if there is nothing to learn. However, if you're physically active, exposed to new information, attending new lectures all the time, meeting new people, plasticity is really, really high. And it stays that way throughout the life. So our brains have unlimited potential to learn and change. So you'd ask me, Gabby, okay, it's, it's all well, but how come I still keep doing the things the same old way. How come it's still so, so hard for me to stop eating croissants in the morning? Or to, 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 you know, to quit smoking a cigarette? Or to stop arguing with my spouse? Well, of course, it's a little bit more complex than that. In order to create a new networks and to reduce activity in the existing networks, we need to go through quite a lengthy process. And that takes energy. By the way, and I'll probably send you the slides, so you'll have a copy of the slides. But I can put, oh, you can take a picture now if you like. You can see that a lot of people want, to, want that. So we have to go through so-called five stages. This is just one of the models, by the way. But I find that model quite helpful when we're thinking about change. We have to go through five distinct stages. And each stage, we need to get things done 
kind of which are relevant for this stage in order to transit to the next stage. We can't speed things up. So first of all, we need to, to uh, enter so-called pre-contemplation stage, where we really kind of, and that's where most of us are when we just start the change, when we kind of keep still doing things the same old way, but we start building dissatisfaction with that. We start building desire to do things differently. Because with, without that, you, you can't change just because. You have to have a reason to change. The brain doesn't do random things because you just kind of say, oh, that would be nice, and I do it. No, it has to have real reason to do that. In contemplation stage, we start to think what is it specifically that we want to change, and how do we want to change that? In preparation stage, we get really kind of you know, ready for the change, and we free up the space and time for that change to happen. And only then, when we prepare through all these three stages, we take action. And later stage, which is the, the most common stage to miss, is maintenance. So we do action for long enough till it becomes the brain highway, till it becomes so strong that it becomes second nature for us. Now, most common change involves contemplation, action, quitting, right? So, so we'll, we'll go through each of those stages, and I'll give you a pragmatic tool. What could you do to transit in that stage? In pre-contemplation stage, we do the things the same old way. And the reason being uh, that most of habits, most of all habits, are already run by our mammal brain. Why does that happen? So different brain centers consume different, different amounts of energy. And I like to portray that by kind of using different metaphors of different vehicles. So lizard brain is like one of those annoying Vespas, right? One of those annoying little motorcycles. It doesn't, doesn't need much fuel, but it goes. It doesn't go very fast, but it just keeps on going all the time. And all these functions like breathing, heartbeat, digestion, they don't require much energy. And brain always finds energy for it. Uh, mammal brain is a bit more expensive. It's like a car. It, it requires, it's active most of the time when we are awake, but when we're sleeping, certain centers are active while others are resting. Hippocampus is active while we sleep, by the way. And hippocampus is processing the things you learn that day when we sleep. So if we don't get enough sleep, the, 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 that processing doesn't happen effectively, and we are much more likely to forget what we learn. So after the lecture, take a nap before the next lecture. Um, and also, like, mammal brain is responsible for emotions, habits, and all the old skills, and requires more energy than lizard brain, but not nearly as much as the human brain. Human brain is like a plane. It requires enormous amounts of energy. And it's active only and only when we do the tasks which require that functioning, but also when we have enough energy for it. If we are stressed or tired or like exhausted, we, we lack sleep, there is not enough energy for effective functioning of that. And as a result, we naturally, when we are tired or, or in a bad emotional state, we naturally revert back to the mammal brain-driven uh, old habits. 
It, because that requires much, much, much less energy, requires much less of the, the active willpower as well. So in that state, it's unrealistic. If we are constantly tired or experience chronic levels of stress, can we actually create change? The answer is we all, we all try that, haven't we? We can't. It's just not possible. Because it's, it's like a person you know, who um, broken, broken the leg and is trying to run a marathon. You can't. You need to wait till your leg heals first before you can run. So first advice in this change is really being aware and being mindful that in order for you to change anything in your life, any habit you want to change, you first need to sort out your energy consumption. We need to reduce mental load and get less busy. We, we perhaps need to prioritize the, the tasks and make sure that we are not wasting energy on things that are not important to you. By the way, prioritizing consumes a lot of energy as well. Uh, does anybody write to-do lists in the morning? Raise your hands if you write to-do lists. How many items do you normally have on to-do lists? Ten. Okay, raise your hands if you have uh, ten or more. You're wasting quite a lot of energy on that. Because your brain constantly is comparing them. It can't stop comparing. So one of the most useful things I kind of discovered for myself a, a while ago was I write only one item on to-do list and ask myself, what is the most useful thing, the most crucial thing for me to get done today? And only and only when I get that task done, I ask, what's the second most important thing for me to get done today? Once I get that done, I ask, what's the third most thing, important thing? Because what happens then, I start with the, with the action, which is already you know, top priority for me. Because if I have really long to-do list, brain gets overwhelmed with that, and it wants to start with which action? The easiest, or the most fun, which is not always the most important. And a lot of times, the things which are truly meaningful and important to us, they cause a certain level of anxiety and fear in us. There was a good book about that. Uh, it's not a neuroscience book, but it's a popular, popular book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. It's basically how the fear tells us um, about what's important to us. So we need to really sort, sort our energy consumption first and really look at our to-do lists and look at where do we actually spend time and energy and which of those tasks are not that important. Which tasks can we actually stop doing or delegate or you know, perhaps they're not even important to us at all. The second stage, contemplation. In the contemplation stage, we start to think, I feel a little bit dissatisfied with my life. What is it that's not working? What is it that's not working? So that's usually quite emotional motive to it. And emotions um, is just the brain's, mammal's brain's way of telling you what is working for you, what's not. Emotions kind of try to steer you to situations which are better for you you know, in the evolutionary sense, which are good for your survival and survival to the, of the species, but in a more modern way, which give you pleasure and which give you, they try to steer us away from situations which give us pain. So we naturally, when we associate certain actions with pain and effort and work, what do we want to do with them? We don't want to do them. We want to go as far away from that as possible. 
Now, whenever we associate any action with a pleasure, immediate or in future, gain, as you know, achieving something that's important to us, we naturally want to do that. So when, when, we, when we think about things, and what, which would give us pleasure, and in fact, which feel pleasurable to do, our brain chemistry and body chemistry changes completely. We activate so-called parasympathetic nervous system. The molecule in the brain, neurotransmitter in the brain, which causes pleasure is called dopamine. And different things give different amount of dopamine. Uh, so for example, if you eat a nice, nice snack, you get, let's imagine, like a um, certain amount of dopamine. When you listen to the interesting audiobook, you might get as much or more or less, depending on how, how you know, important the learning is to you. When you spend time with people you love, you get quite a good boost of dopamine. Or if you do the job which feels meaningful and interesting to you, you get dopamine as well. But also we get dopamine actually when we switch between tasks and procrastinate. And that's the reason we really do that. When we keep on checking our phone for new, new kind of, you know, news feeds and new messages, we get a kick of dopamine. So a lot of time dopamine steals our attention as well with all the distractions and procrastinations. So dopamine is kind of just natural way for our, for, for our brain to get motivated by feeling pleasure in doing things. But when we do activities we like, not only we get more dopamine, we get more of so-called oxytocin in the body and in the brain. Oxytocin is also called the molecule of trust or molecule of attachment, molecule of love, especially we are, if when we are around the people we like, or also around people whom we feel are consistent in terms of their behavior. And what oxytocin is probably one of the most pleasant molecules to experience because it creates a nice and warm glow. You know, if you're holding a nice fluffy uh, puppy or kitten or like a you know little baby in your arms oxytocin is naturally released or if you cuddle cuddle each other you know and if, if that felt nice you got oxytocin now what oxytocin does it dilates blood vessels in your brain so in the given time there is more oxygen and more glucose arriving to your neocortex to your smartest brain areas so that makes us actually intellectually emotionally perceptually smarter. So when we are doing the things we enjoy, in fact, not only it feels good, but we are much more capable. We're much more, much sharper and much more capable to do things, uh, you know, the, the, the best possible, possible way. Also, we can make the best decisions in those situations. And only then we can truly care for other people and we can be creative because then there is loads of energy to your neocortex. When we experience pain or stress, quite a different things happen. Uh, in our body, we get adrenaline, and in the brain, we get exactly the same molecule, but between the neurons, it's called noradrenaline. And they actually contract the blood vessels in the brain and dilate blood vessels in your muscles. So basically, in the stress, this, the whole point of stress is to prepare your body to run away or to punch somebody in the face. So, so, so it kind of those, so usually it creates completely kind of tunnel, tunnel vision, tunnel thinking, really narrow-minded way of being. 
And that blocks creativity. It blocks our ability to connect with others and to remember what things are truly important. We are very much mammal brain dominant in that state. And in every possible way tested, people also perform really, really poorly in perceptual tasks like visual tasks, auditory tasks. So basically, we're kind of dumb in that state. But we don't realize that because we can't self-assess very well. In addition to that, the chronic low-level stress reduces brain plasticity. The neuroplasticity neuro, neuro, um, is greatly reduced, especially the birth of new cells called neurogenesis is reduced when we're experiencing stress. Very interesting, relatively recent finding is if we get a lot of oxytocin in our life, so if we have stable, fulfilling relationships, either in our personal life or at work or in friendships, it kind of buffers the negative effects of stress. So it buffers against the negative effects of cortisol. So that's, that's quite an important thing to remember if you experience loads of stress, and if you have quite stressing personality, make sure to surround yourself with good friendships, with really loving and caring people. Or get a, get a puppy. <laughs> True, it helps for many people. But that's the main reason we get pets, isn't it? Uh, so, so what's the second advice? If you want to change anything in your life, really have a think. What is it that you want to change and why do you want to change it? Because if you think about, okay, I want to stop eating croissants, that associates with pain, right? Because it associates with loss of pleasure. But if I say I want to feel healthier and more energetic, that associates with pleasure. So we need to paraphrase what we want to achieve in the positive associations way. So we need to look at what do we want to gain from this change, not what we're going to lose. Because if, you, if you're going to like kind of just look at, at the changes, it's going to be painful, it's going to be unpleasant, how likely are you to do it? Not very likely. Now, second thing, which, which kind of helps also to implement change, is rewarding yourself for little steps. And kind of finding the, there's a good book on that, it's called The Mindset by Carol Dweck, actually how to kind of have compassionate way and how to have like, reward yourself for the process rather than the result. To praise yourself for kind of putting effort towards the achieving, achieving change. Because a lot of us are quite self-critical and self-punishing. We notice the mistakes we have made rather than the progress we made and the effort we put. So we also need to cultivate the attitude of self-appreciation for the effort we put and what we have done well. So positive reinforcement, gratitude list, what went well today list, they're all the ways to kind of kick the dopamine in your brain. And we are in charge of that. We can actually do it based on what we focus on. And some people need to put more effort in changing their mindset than others. And last but not least, in order to create another kick in your butt, you can actually get really clear. Sit down and think, what would be the drawbacks if you didn't change? Okay, let's go back to that croissant, because as you can see, I quite like pastries. Uh, so what would be the consequences if I kept eating pastries all the time? Right? What would be the negatives of that? What's that? Sorry? Yeah, I could get diabetes. I could get really, really, you know, larger than I would like to. And I could perhaps, perhaps just 
get sugar, sugar rush and sh then sugar crash and feel really lethargic and not have energy to get my work done, which I absolutely love doing my work. So once I look at the kind of sticking to the same old way as a negative thing, suddenly it's kind of, you know, it's more, more motivation created from that. Third preparation stage. So we got clear on what we want to do and why we want to do it. In that stage, we need to actually now examine what is the old way? What are, the, what are we getting from the habits? Because the reason you keep on doing the same old habits is because you're getting something really, really important to you out of it. We can't get rid of habits. We can only replace them with other habits which meet exactly the same need. And that's very important, exactly the same need, because those needs are crucial for us. We need to meet them. And when we do every habit, uh, and there is, there is a good book of that, about that called The Power of Habit by Charles Duck, called, uh, uh, which basically examines the, 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 that kind of the, the habit, habit loop and how to use that to change your habits. Because with each habit, there is a cue which kind of sets the habit off. Then there is the habit you do, and that's the reward or something you get out of it. So let's look at smoking cigarettes. I never smoke, smoke myself, but I kind of, you know, when I examine, uh, when, I, when I interview the smokers, they say, like, when I feel anxious and I feel a bit unwell in myself, I just naturally I feel drawn to go and have a cigarette. And once I have a cigarette, I feel better. I feel calm. I feel more relaxed. And I can explain from neuroscience point of view why that happens. But the trigger here is certain emotional states, or for some people, trigger could be a preceding action. It could be when they have coffee or when they're at the party that that's triggered the desire to smoke. Uh, then the, 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 the routine is smoking a cigarette. And reward is feeling better, changing your emotional state. Now, another very, very common, common habit, drinking coffee in the morning. And drinking three, two, three cups of coffee in the morning, as, as for some people might be. So the cue here is certain time of the day and feeling tired and lack of energy. Routine is having, having a cup of coffee and the reward is feeling, feeling nice, feeling more you know, upbeat and more awake and more energetic. So here again, cue is, cue is time of the day or certain state and reward is changed emotional state. Now, is that habit familiar to anyone? Well, we actually are quite different with that habit. Now, imagine you are, you, like imagine here on your table, there is a jar of freshly baked chocolate cookies. Raise your hands if you would resist and not even have one. Raise your hands if you'll have one, and that's it. Raise your hands if you would try to eat as many as you can. <laughs> Good. So we all, we all have different habits we developed over time. So very important is to realize that we all struggle with different things based on what habits we build over time and what associations we have in our brains. So, so as I mentioned, there is multiple cues which can set the habit off. So first of all, it could be time of the day. It could be certain place. So we have certain habits, you know, when we go to the office or when we come back home or when we're in the pub. It could be desired to change certain emotional states or mental states. For example, feeling anxious or lonely or sad uh, can set off the habits of eating sugar, 
uh, drinking alcohol, procrastinating on the phone. It could be certain, certain people that trigger habits in us. So it's very, very kind of case specific for each habit. It could be the action you've done before, uh, or it could be, it could be kind of, you know, uh, just certain situations. So we really, really need to get clear. Just take one habit in your mind's eye now and choose what, what is that habit that you choose. In everyone now, have a thing, choose one habit. So for me, for example, I choose a habit of, uh, when I'm bored, I often feel a desire to eat sugar when I'm bored. Boredom is kind of my, my trigger. So imagine I, I, I sit at home looking after, we have a little child, she's, she's turning two now, and you know, I, I look after her quite, quite a lot. And when I'm at home and if I'm really bored when she's asleep, for example, if I don't have a seminar to prepare or interesting book I'm reading, I'm like, mm, what shall I do? Shall I have a well, croissant? Let's go back to that. <laughs> And uh, what is it that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, what's the reward I'm getting is changing the boredom state because sugar is a very quick way to get dopamine kicking in the mind and feeling that buzz. But that's short-lived. So what could be other, other ways to meet the same need? And that's what we need to ask when we're trying to change the habit. By the way, in addition to changing emotional needs, or you know, kind of meeting uh, physiological needs, we also try to meet psychological needs. And those six needs mentioned there, this is just one way to look at psychological needs. We need to meet them every day. In you know, whatever way we find to meet them, we all need to feel safe. We all need certain level of safety. So imagine each of those needs is like a glass. You need to fill it. So I could meet safety via you know, having stable career or stable relationship. Or I could meet safety from you know, uh, having the same the same dysfunctional patterns in relationships. I could meet safety via staying in the job I hate, for example. It's not me, but it has been me in the past. Uh, variety is another need we need to fill. And some people are more kind of driven for variety than others. Some people need more no novelty. So we can meet variety with reading new material, attending lectures, doing new activities, watching new movies, or we can meet variety by shouting at people and having arguments. Have you, has, has any of you ever like kind of picked up the argument when you were bored? It's not uncommon to, to kind of spice things up. And it, it happens subconsciously. It's not the conscious choice we make. But our kind of mammal brain calculates. Things are a little bit too steady, too stable. I need to stir things up to meet variety. Right? Significance is another need we can meet either in a, in a positive way or less, less so. So I can feel significant uh, making a really, really nice dinner for my husband. I can, or can feel significant criticizing him. Again, you know, it would feel different both for him and for me. But significance is feeling that your actions have an effect on someone or something. So feeling that you matter in the world. I can feel significant by giving a good lecture to you guys, but also I can feel significant by criticizing somebody else's lecture. Right? So it's, it's different ways to meet the same thing. But nonetheless, if we can't find the, the kind of empower, empowered ways to meet the needs, we often meet it with you know, those less empowered ways. Love and connection is a crucial need for us to meet. Again, we can meet that by having friendships 
and, and, and having loving, loving relationships and families, but also we can meet the connection via bitching with somebody about somebody else. It's a certain way of bonding, isn't it? Have you guys been doing that there? <laughs> I can see the people here, oh yeah, I can see that. And that's the way, by the way, why people gossip, because they feel connected while gossiping about something. They have something to, to kind of bond them. And other two needs, only when we meet those first four needs in the constructive and positive ways, we can grow and we can develop. So all of those, those needs are often kind of at play when we kind of are doing the habits. So let's take Peter. Here's Peter, and here's the job he hates. I don't, what, could, what could the job be? Any ideas? Let's imagine he wants to be creative artist and he's an accountant, right? And, but he's so good at being accountant, and he's kind of got used to certain level of income he's earning, that he's really scared to change. Maybe he has a large family to support. Maybe he has a huge mortgage to pay. So he feels stuck. He comes into his work, he feels miserable because he's kind of, you know, not fulfilled in his career. And whenever he starts feeling anxious and sad, he goes and has a, has a drink in the bar downstairs. And he feels better because he forgets about his pain. He, it's a temporary relief. So here the trigger is being at work and being unhappy about it. Uh, the, the routine is drinking alcohol. And the reward is kind of escaping the unpleasant emotions. What could be alternative for Peter? Imagine he has a friend who changed his career. His name is John. Imagine instead of going for an alcohol, he invites uh, John to the, not to the same bar, to the cafe across the road, and they meet for lunch with John every day when he's feeling miserable. John maybe works, you know, in, in, down the street. And they meet up for lunch and they chat and they brainstorm ideas how to change the situation, how he could start in small steps, and he, John can be sharing with him his, his way. And also, Peter has a chance to talk and kind of to share his frustration with somebody who can empathize with that, who went through it himself. So the cue is feeling miserable, the routine is meeting up with John and, and sharing things, and the reward is exactly the same, feeling, feeling better. It's changing the emotional state. So when we try to change habits, we need to kind of, we can't change the cue. We need to use the same cue, and we need to try to meet the same reward in different, more empowered way. So the third step in creating a change is really like before you make any action, do an inventory of your existing habit you want to change, and ask yourself, what is it that, what is the habit, and what is the cue, and what is the reward? And what other habit in there could meet the same reward? What's kind of feasible? And brainstorm many ideas, you know, as many as you can, and ask yourself, which of those ideas would be the most feasible for me? You know, we can, we can come up with a really all of amazing ideas, but if we don't get around doing that, that, that's no good either. So which of those would be the most feasible and the easiest to implement? Now, only the fourth step is action. As you can see, we, we kind of have to go quite a long way before we actually do anything. Because if we just jump in and do things randomly, we'll trigger the brain area called amygdala. 
Amygdala is a part of the mammal brain responsible for protecting you from any danger. Amygdala is the area we, we need to thank for, that we survived really harsh environments 10,000 years ago. That, that, that's the brain area responsible for us being safe and kind of staying away from danger. Amygdala always scans the environment and searches for any potential danger out there. If it detects something unfamiliar or possibly that could be dangerous, it creates anxiety and fear. So you kind of change the environment, run away from that danger, and, and, and kind of save, save yourself. Now the issue nowadays, modern world, that there is a lot of triggers of amygdala which are not necessarily dangerous. Novelty is one of them. Amygdala absolutely hates novelty. It's, it loves familiarity. It loves things being kind of same old, familiar, and because it knows what to expect. The mammal brain can't understand really complex world. It can't understand the things which are not yet, you know, familiar with. So when we want to implement a change, any action, we firstly need to choose very, very small step which wouldn't set off the amygdala. Because what happens when amygdala is active, it deactivates prefrontal cortex. So for a short period of time, we become like Phineas Gage. And a perfect example of that could be, look back in your memory and find the time when you were really, really angry at somebody, or really furious, or really like, you know, experiencing very strong emotions, such as jealousy, anxiety, fear, anger. Raise your hands if you ever experienced those, but to the really high extent. So most of us. Now raise your hands if you have said, said something or done something really, really stupid in that situation. Most of us again, and that's normal. That's how the brain is designed to be. Because in that state, prefrontal cortex is temporarily inactivated. Because when you are basically, this, this, this kind of circuitry was created to run away from bear or lion or any other predator. And when you're you know, using your energy for your muscles to run away, it's not the time to contemplate. It's not the time to be really intelligent. It's the time to kind of you know, spend all your energy you have to run really, really fast. So, so it's in those states we can't be intelligent. And we revert naturally back to the old habits. We can't help it. The mammal brain kind of pushes us that way. So in order to implement a lasting change, we need to start with very, very, very small, achievable thing. And do that for a long period enough so it becomes familiar. So imagine, uh, would any of you like to exercise more frequently? Imagine you want to exercise more frequently. We need to take, okay, what's the reality? How much am I exercising now? Let's imagine my number would be zero days a week, okay? So what's the small achievable goal? It would be maybe to go for a 30 minute walk, 15 minute walk. Only once I do that, once a week, perhaps I want to increase that to twice a week. Once I did that, and that becomes a habit, perhaps I might incorporate going to the gym once a week for, let's imagine, half, half an hour class, and so on. But we need to firstly choose one small step and become really familiar and comfortable with that. And only then we can add the second step. Once that becomes familiar, the third step, and so on. In addition to that, if you, are, if you do experience high levels of anxiety and stress, 
In addition to that, you also do, do the amygdala soothing activities or reducing, reducing activities. We can do one of those activities now. Would you like to experience amygdala soothing? Yeah? Okay, brilliant. So we do have time for it. So, so let me just guide you through this amygdala soothing meditation. Breathing and, and mindfulness meditations and physical exercise are probably the best ways to soothe your amygdala. So I'll ask you all to close your eyes and, um, and put, put your hands on your lap or on your tummy, not on your neighbors, on your, your own. <laughs> and now just breathe in. Uh, sit straight up in the chair, by the way, without your back touching the, the, the back of the chair. Just as straight as you can. And breathe in to the count of four. Hold to the count of four. And breathe out to the count of four. Once again, into the count of four. Hold. And breathe out to the count of four. Now imagine a sunny outside. You breathe in that sunshine and feel your tummy. Feel how your tummy expands. You feel your chest. You feel your back. And hold it for a little bit. And breathe out slowly and gently. Imagine you're by the sea. You can hear the waves crashing into the shore. You can hear the seagulls, maybe. And you breathe in their freedom and freshness. You fill your tummy. You fill your chest. You fill your back. And hold it for a little bit. And now breathe out slowly and gently. Now imagine it's, it's winter time and it's maybe snowing outside. But you're sitting inside of the really cozy stone cottage, maybe somewhere in the Peak District. And, and you're sitting in front of the fireplace with a cup of hot tea maybe, and maybe the blanket around you. And you breathe in that coziness and warmth. You feel your tummy. You feel your chest, you feel your back. And hold it for a little bit. And breathe out slowly and gently. Now last time, imagine that there is a candle on the table and you look at the flame of the candle and you breathe in the peace and tranquility. You fill your tummy, you fill your chest, you fill your back, and hold it for a little bit. And breathe out slowly and gently. And when you're ready, open your eyes. Raise your hands if you feel a little bit more chilled. So breathing is the best way to change our stress response. Because what happens when we are stressed, our breathing changes. It's the first thing to change. We start to breathe much more shallow. And that breathing change itself increases the stress response. So when we, when we slow down the breathing, especially breathing out phase, then naturally reduces the stress. 
but also when we focus on something positive, such as you know, all those things I mentioned, we, we can't focus on that and on some stressful thoughts at the same time, because attention can only focus, truly focus on one thing. So when we do those guided meditations or think about pleasant things, we naturally reduce you know, the focus on the stressor. So that's the second thing, which reduces our stress response. And we give our brain and body the chance to get in so-called relaxation state. And, and it kills the kind of, because we often, a lot of people when we do that exercise say, wow, I didn't realize I was stressed. Because right? we often have that low level of chronic stress we kind of carry with us in a day-to-day -day life. For example, if you were rushing to this lecture today, you might have got stressed about that. If you missed the train, you might have got stressed. If, you, if you're learning, if you get information overload, if you're learning too much all at once, you might get stressed. If, you're, you know, kind of, if you don't, don't feel very comfortable being with so many different people in the same room, that can cause stress itself. So there's a lot of things which can constantly keep, keep, keep creating stress. If, if it's too bright or too loud, that can cause stress. If it's maybe speaker, if speaker talks too quietly, that can cause stress. So there's all throughout the day, there's many, many things which are so subtle, we can increase the level of stress. So I would recommend to everyone to do those, any kind of stress re reducing activities for five minutes a day to start with. Whatever helps. It could be just going outside for five minutes, just you know, breathing fresh air. It could be just listening to the music you like for five minutes. It could be trying the apps. There is loads of, loads of apps for mindfulness and meditation and guided breathing apps. Whatever really helps you to switch off for five minutes a day, get that started as, as one of the habits. And last but not least, maintenance stage. So how long do we need to do activity till become, that becomes a kind of a second nature or a habit? And the answer is, it depends. Uh, we all have heard of 21 days, but actually it really, really depends on the habit. Depends how complex or simple a habit is, and that's really personal. So here is a graph of so-called automaticity score. So basically, how many times out of 100 you kind of automatically choose to do that activity. So we can see uh, that, and this is amount of days on there. So with simple habits, we learn quite quickly and we reach automaticity score of 40%, which is quite high. Uh, I know you, you, we all aim for 100, but that's not very possible in human behavior. So it means like, for example, what could be a simple, simple change? Imagine if you're drinking three cups of coffee a day and you want to reduce to two cups of coffee a day. For many people, it's a simple habit. Now, what could be a complex habit if you want to quit coffee altogether? Or if you want to change a lot of different things in your nutrition? Simple habit could also be if you're exercising relatively regularly, but you want to exercise a little bit more. So simple habit usually is when something you're already doing, but you want to kind of increase it. That's quite simple. Now, when we talk about standard habits, it usually requires changing quite a lot. So if you are physically quite inactive and want to get really, really fit, that could be standard habit. So instead of what's called 21 days, it in fact takes, takes more than two, like, like two months to get a little bit you know, into habit. Now when there is other people involved, such as changing relationship dynamics, 
changing the team dynamics, changing leadership style, changing certain career, um, I wouldn't say career as such, but more kind of performance habits, because a lot of, a lot of situations are complex systems where other people are involved as well. That takes more like three months to create any, any visible, visible habit change. So it really kind of, it's, there is no simple answer to that. You really need to ask, how familiar am I with this change? Have I done this in the past? How successful I've been with that? Um, and, and kind of just set realistic expectations for that. Also, there is a lot of studies, now I kind of, it's a shame I didn't put the slide with that, but there is a lot of studies showing that when people do something new, there is actually new networks formed quite quickly. Within a week or two, we see the brain plasticity and, and new networks. However, if the person stops doing that, the networks disappear. So it, it only is maintained with a regularity and doing things in a regular manner for long enough period. So if you ask me how frequently and how much, I would say rather it's small dose at the time and more frequently then loads at once and non, you know, for the long period of time. So if you were to choose an exercise, I would rather say, you know, start exercise maybe five minutes a day, uh, three days a week, rather than an hour a day, once a week, and things like that. Uh, and, you know, of course, it, it really depends on, on, the, on the kind of which habits you go for. So, you know, we, in order to make any lasting change, we really need to be aware that it does take time. Because those networks in the brain are really hard to build. And not only you need to build new networks, you need to weaken the existing networks. So the new network becomes more and more your go-to place. Also, it's quite good to get like kind of social accountability and other support systems, like reading the books on how to create change, maybe joining some sort of communities which are supporting, asking your friend you know, to keep on calling you every morning and say, have you done that? And things like that. And betting, maybe saying, okay, if I haven't done that by the end of the week, I need to pay Gabby a hundred pounds and things like that. I'm just kidding. So, so just to summarize, and I'll take any questions you have. In order to create lasting change, first step, we need to reduce mental load and we need to reduce stress. Because if we don't do that, we, we, it's unrealistic for us to expect our prefrontal cortex to be functioning optimally. And that's needed for us to create a lasting change. Get clear on the benefits of change and drawbacks of staying where you are. Get to know your habits, because each of your existing habits, no matter how much you might hate it, you, do, you get something out of it, something that's really, really vital for you. And you need to meet those needs. Otherwise, you'll fall back to the same old habit. But you need to find a better way, a better alternative to get the same rewards. Change gradually in small steps. The smaller, the better. Creating a lasting change takes a long time. So be prepared to, to kind of focus on that. Only changing one thing, one habit at a time for at least one to three, three months if needed. And get support if needed from whoever you're comfortable with. So thank you so much for your attention today. Uh, if you need to get in touch, here's my, my contacts. I'll go back to previous slide with a summary if you like. But you, you all probably received the slides. If you have any, any kind of extra questions, you can send me an email or you can con get connected to me on any of those media things. I'll be, I'll be delighted to answer any questions you have now.
Thank you. Uh, thank, you. thank you so much. Thank you. Sorry, could you repeat? Yeah. Yeah, very good question. So there is quite a few things in place. So one is myelination. So basically, the the um, the neurons and the networks where be, which are being most most used, they become so-called myelinated. So myelin is a kind of basically the different type of cells in the brain. It's the glia cells which surround the ax the the neurons. In, it basically creates a lipid or fat layer around it, so the electricity goes much, much faster. It's called myelination. It's the most, the most frequently seen. So, for example, if we scan the brains of professional musicians, they, the motor neurons have much more myelination. So, and they, they can do those actions much, much quicker. So that's one of the main components of why we can do things quicker and stronger. The, uh, so that's the one component. The second component, in the synapses or those gaps between the neurons, there is more neurotransmitter being released and more receptors to perceive it. So that, that chemical process is much quicker as well. So it's both electricity travels quicker and there is much stronger chemical signal. Um, basically, if you've got um, an even more complex habit or uh, behavior, say, say to certain things, you react in a certain way, which you'd like to, whereas you'd like, like to react in another way. So, for instance, uh, suppose you've got an anxiety response, mm -hmm. and uh, is that classified as a very complex habit? How, I mean, how, how would one go about changing that? With the, with the same methodology you've used, or would one actually, it would take much longer? Yeah, so, so whenever we talk about certain emotional states as anxiety, it's quite tricky to address, because we need to break it down need to look, what is triggering my anxiety? What situations? So if, imagine if somebody had a social phobia, right? So, so we need to kind of firstly take, okay, what are the triggers? When do I get that? And how I could kind of be exposed to the social encounters in a safe enough manner to help my brain get used to it and get the positive reinforcement. So instead of going and giving a, a presentation in front of the large audience, you might want to meet up one-on-one -on -one with a friend somewhere, maybe in your own house. The second step is to meet up with the same friend in the cafe. The third step with the same friend, maybe to go to the concert. You see, so there has to be loads of safety. Whenever we talk about anxiety, anxiety is very, very common. It's in fact the brain's way to tell you, you're not safe enough, you need more safety. And you need to create these things which are kind of triggering anxiety. You need to create loads of familiarity and do things at the very, very small kind of steps in order to make it happen. If somebody wants to become a public speaker, and you get anxiety, think in public speaking, start presenting to somebody you know. But somebody who gives, who, who, whom you have so-called mutually empowering a relationship with, around whom you feel yourself, around whom you feel like you can do things in the way that is you, basically. Don't go and present to the person whom you feel intimidated by. That that's, you know, would, would cause just more anxiety. Once you're familiar with presenting to that person, or maybe start with presenting just to the computer, by the way, 
Once you're familiar with that, present to, to, to somebody. Once you're familiar with that, maybe invite a couple friends for, for, for a kind of a drink and present to them and so on. So kind of taking one step at a time. But when we talk about anxiety, it's very important to look what specifically is triggering your anxiety. There was quite a good book uh, called Rewire Your Anxious Brain which really talks about what happens in the brain when we feel anxious and gives pragmatic tools how we can actually help our brain to overcome those anxiety triggers. Anxiety is just telling to you, it's not familiar enough for me. I'm scared. I think I'm going to die. And you need to teach your brain it's safe. You know, it's, it's, it's not a lion. It's not a tiger. It's not going to eat you. But it's, it's very normal. It's mammal's brain way to tell you. Thank you. Um... Just checking, you were saying that the amygdala or the mammal brain, and yet there are other theorists who say that the amygdala is called the reptilian brain, which is ambiguous in terms of your recording part of the brain. Does it make some yeah, very good. So the tune brain model, or that system of lizard, mammal, and human brain, is, is um, not everybody agrees with it. I use it in my public talks. I don't use it with my university students as much because it's kind of, in some ways, it's oversimplified, but in other ways, it's really helpful. It definitely kind of relates to the energy consumption. Now, the reason we, we group it into the amygdala is crucial part of so-called limbic system. That's the other way to group a number of areas which are important in emotional processing. So a lot of kind of researchers use the limbic system and mammal brain as almost synonyms. So, so if you want to be more accurate, just go by the names of brain areas. Don't group them into, into kind of sp specific centers. But limbic brain is quite, is quite well um, accepted by the neuroscience community, a way of calling this, the, 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 the structures. If you want to learn more about amygdala, I suggest uh, looking at the books. There is uh, a number of books by the scientist called Joseph do, and he has a lot of YouTube videos on that as well. He's, in fact, one of the best researchers on amygdala. He investigated amygdala on the fear response in, in rodents, and his book is called Emotional Brain, is one book, and the other is called, I think, Anxiety or Anxious Brain. If you just check Ledoux, uh, I think I reading list recommended. If, if not, just drop me an email. But if you just, just Google Joseph Ledoux, Emotional brain. That he has a definitely book book on that. Uh, L E D uh, E U O U X at the end. Thank you. It's quite a complex name, but he's he's brilliant. He even has a band called Am Amygdaloids, and they kind of sing songs about amygdala. You can find it on YouTube. Brilliant. Any other questions? Um, hi, thanks so much. Um, can everyone hear me? Yeah, <laughs> um, I was just wondering what are your thoughts on the role of guilt and shame in terms of habit change? Because you hear a lot about it being having a negative effect, for instance, on people trying to lose a significant amount of weight or change yeah. a habit that they're ashamed of. And then some papers suggest that actually, for instance, when you look at um, smoking ban and warnings against them, health mm -hmm. of smoking, that they're interpreted. As a, as, a, as a form of shaming, saying that sort of changed some people's opinions on smoking habits. So, what are your thoughts? There's, there's lots of schools of thoughts or ideas floating around guilt and shame in terms yeah, of. Yeah, very, habits. very good question. So, negative rewards is a good way to stop people 
to help people stop doing actions in terms of how quickly we get the facts. However, why the change happens is a questionable thing. Because imagine you have a little child, and a child is drawing on the walls. You want the child to stop drawing on the walls. If you hit the child, it would stop drawing on the walls faster. But what would that do to the child? If you shout on the child, that would stop it faster. And then you say, you know what, don't draw on the walls, let's go and draw there. It would take longer, but it would create much better relationship between the parent and child, and much better relationship of the child within the child. I recently uh, read the books called, called Scattered Minds about ADHD children and ADHD adults as well. I did a workshop yesterday on neurodiversity. And very frequently, people with ADHD have a lot of shame within them. And they almost apologize for everything. The, the, the person who written the book, he works as, as a therapist, and he would say, like, I get the people you know, with ADHD coming to my office and saying, I'm really sorry I'm here. Or like, I'm, I'm really sorry I'm such a tricky case. So they do have quite a lot of shame. And that seems to be one of the reasons why they kind of show, really can help to focus their attention because they have really constant stress response within. So anything that's, that's kind of emotionally loaded creates internal stress, which in turn creates loads of problems. So in general, I'm much more for a more compassionate way of changing. And if you want to kind of learn some methods, there is loads. There is Brenna Brown written loads of books about compassionate way of changing and addressing the change. Uh, the, um, what I mentioned, Carol Dweck in Mindset written about that. But most importantly, a lot of times the reason we go back to the old habits is normal. And a lot of issues, a lot of mental well-being issues happen when we have unrealistic expectations on ourselves. When we expect to be non-human, basically. Like doing things, you know, with no mistakes, sticking to the old habits, it's not realistic for their brain. And when we fall back to the old habits, when we struggle with things, that's how the brain is designed to be. The brain is designed to stick to the things and change gradually and keep on going back to test whether that's working well or not. So it's kind of, and, and that's one of the reasons I'm, I really want to write a book for mental well-being uh, about the brain. Because I think a lot of, a lot of anxiety and depression issues and ADHD and, uh, and even autism um, kind of, you know, repetitive behaviors get worse when there is lots of stress. And a lot of things, if we have stress-inducing way of thinking and unrealistic expectations to our, ourselves, we're guaranteed to constantly experience stress. And, you know, Buddhists said the, the, the sure way to unhappiness is to reach unattainable or try to fight, fight the reality. I like one of the behavior, behaviorist speakers uh, Dr. John Demartini says he, he wants to write a book on I quit searching for, for happiness because it made me miserable. <laughs> because the reality is we have so many unrealistic expectations on ourselves. That makes us really, really unhappy. So shaming and guilt tripping is really, really kind of very stress inducing both for self and, and others. Any other questions? But it, it unfortunately does provide short-term effects, and that's why people usually use it. But I, I, I rather suggest going for more longer term. Thank you for a fascinating talk. No Connected to extend to the last question, what's the role of um, positive psychology, which gets a 
bad press nowadays, generally, I think. Um, both in terms of letting yourself off the hook if you don't pursue something persistently, consistently to change. And also to reward yourself. You, you sort of touched on the reward yourself a bit. Yeah. If you can say a, a bit more about that, please. Yeah, really good question. So I personally was myself quite skeptical about positive psychology until I learned more about it. To be honest, I, I, when I started now lecturing at Sheffield Hallam University, I was asked to lecture on, on positive psychology course to deliver a couple lectures, on one on gratitude and the other, I don't remember my subject, but something related on strengths maybe. And I realized actually that I think what we call in a kind of popular way positive psychology is not really positive psychology. Let me explain you. So if we think, oh, I'm just perfect, there is nothing faulty with me. That's delusional thinking. That's not positive thinking. <laughs> but if I say, you know what? Sometimes I do things really well, but sometimes I screw up. Sometimes I'm really reliable and get things done in time, but sometimes I lag behind and I'm unreliable and procrastinate. But both sides are in me. So, if, you, so kind of, if we embrace both sides of the coin, we have realistic thinking. But with the, where the positive psychology comes in, it reminds us the positive side of the coin. It doesn't say that the negative side doesn't exist. It just says, in addition to the negative side, which amygdala keeps shouting about really loudly, there is another side as well. So it helps to basically have a bit more realistic thinking because what happens, a lot of times people who are the cockiest and the most kind of um, arrogant are the ones who experience the most pain because they kind of fluctuate between both sides, between being, feeling that they are really, really unimportant and worth nothing to suddenly flipping to completely opposite, thinking that they are better than others. But when we embrace both sides and say, you know what? I have some talents and gifts, but I have some shortcomings. When we embrace both sides, we are much more empathic, and we see ourselves kind of at the same level to others. We don't see ourselves better or worse. So I think that's kind of the, the, probably the main positive side of positive psychology is reminding you the gifts. But we need to look at the other side as well. If you want to, to check more, if you Google or if you go on YouTube and check Dr. John Demartini, so he has lectures freely available on YouTube on that, on how to embrace both sides and how to kind of stop delusional thinking, how to stop kind of, you know, either inflating yourself or putting yourself in a pit and doing the same with others, how to kind of really like balance your thinking. And I um, ho hope that answers. And if you will, Demartini is D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I. Dr. John Demartini. Uh, John Demartini. Really, I'm going to you see it as a ring. I know you said it, it in the profession, really. But as soon as you don't go down the actual sector. But I'm actually sitting here now, like, I went to the attachment talk yesterday. Yeah. So I'm sitting here now thinking development of the brain um, and the effects on attachments. Because has anybody done that study? I know the study would be very hard. But Attachments is at a very young age, and it's actually on senses really, it's not verbal, mm -hmm. baby's not verbal. Um, I'm just thinking about the study on that and the impact of yeah, the very emotions good. are gathered from there. Yeah, very good. There is a good book called Why Love Matters. 
So basically how our early experiences change the development of mammal brain. If we experience really adverse situations during childhood, but they don't have to be objectively horrible, you know, if parents are not attentive enough, or um, if, if we kind of are criticized too much, uh, our amygdala gets more and more sensitive over time. And that kind of has negative effects on our development of our prefrontal cortex. And we see with the most extreme cases when children are really, really neglected that the prefrontal cortex doesn't develop as powerful because the brain has to mature much quicker. And in order for prefrontal cortex to develop, it takes a lot of years. And in fact, it finishes developing only when we are about 18 to 21 years old. But if child is constantly going through stressful events, that has negative effects on the brain plasticity and the development of, of neocortex, especially prefrontal cortex. Yeah, and that's what I was thinking about is, is the lizard brain, you know, is it slide on? And then it goes into the human brain. How long before that, you know, it's the other mammal brain, before the human brain kicks in. It's, yeah, it's, it, the prefront, it's, it varies. There is a good book called Inventing Ourselves. I could just tell you book, book recommendations all day long. It's called Inventing, Inventing Ourselves on Development of the Human Brain Throughout the Teenage Years. But it, it takes up until 21 years old in many cases. Thank you so much. I think we, probably I'll take just one more question and I run so I don't miss my train and my husband and my daughter are gonna be on the train so I don't want to miss them. Uh, would you be okay? I think this gentleman there was raising hand for a while. Would it be okay to ask it? And I give, for any other questions, just email me. I'll be really happy to answer your questions. <laughs> okay, thank you for an amazing talk. Um, okay, I feel quite scared to share this, so I'm going to do it. Um, I have, well, personally, and maybe someone else can relate to this, but um, I kind of what prompted me to ask this question is when you talked about uh, neurodiversity uh, and the question about shame. So growing up with learning difficulties, I experienced a lot of shame around work um, and a lot of feeling not good enough. Um, and that's actually quite stressful when I want to start my own projects or write or do anything that's self-driven. Um, so there's obviously a lot of procrastination around. Um, you have any tips or at the moment, obviously, I managed to learn difficulties better now that I'm an adult. Do you have any tips for, um, I guess, both managing, but also dealing with all the residual shame and uh, feeling of inadequacy, which kind of drives the procrastination? Mm -hmm. Very good question. So there is a method in psychology called inner child healing. In, I, I like to call it amygdala kind of healing or amygdala soothing. So, so we all have... Well, raise your hands to start with if you sometimes feel not good enough, right? So you're normal, you're one of us. And in fact, when during the university, I used to coach university professors and department heads, most common issue they used to come with me because they felt, you know, imposter. They felt that they are not good enough. And in fact, a lot of them had learning difficulties, funnily enough. So first of all, a few things. So first of all, finding the method that really works for your learning style. There is a book called... Um, the power of neurodiversity, which helps for people with ADHD, dyslexia, other kind of learning difficulties, to personalize their way of learning. That's one thing. So for example, some people learn best from listening to YouTube videos. I do, actually. I watch loads of YouTube uh, lectures by university professors, and I learned a lot of on the courses on Coursera from different university <coughs> courses. 
Uh, and um, some people learn best, you know, like kind of trying things out and exploring. So find your best way of learning, first thing. For people with dyslexia, they often need to read things multiple times. My husband has dyslexia. When he tried to just take notes during the lecture, he wasn't absorbing anything. But if he said, you know what, I just sit and listen, and then I read the textbook, but he would need to read every page six times. If he said, you know what, Gabia reads things only once, why do I need to read six times? He would be screwed, you know? He wouldn't be able to learn anything. He'd say, you know what, for my brain to learn it, I need to read six times. So he, he used to wake up at 5 a.m. in the morning at university. He studied for chiropractic degree. And he would read. He would just read for three hours before the lecture started. And he got the first with distinction at the end as a result. So finding what works for you. Now, dealing with shame, most of people have some shame or guilt issues. And there is, there is good books like, which are kind of, it's not positive psychology. It's more like, I don't even know what to call. Have you heard of Louise Hay? Right. So she's a fluffy, woolly kind of person, but she has a brilliance in her affirmations, which is we need to soothe our amygdala. We need to remind the amygdala that things are okay. And sometimes, so she uses positive affirmations as the way to deal with it. There is um, in the, I forgot, no, transactional analysis, there is in a child healing method, which a lot of psychologists use in their practices and some coaches use it, which is specifically for that. Because shame is, and, and guilt, they stay with our really primitive areas of the brain. So we need to use really quite primitive methods to soothe it. We need to kind of use those kind of, you know, um, lots of praise and lots of kind of our prefrontal cortex uh, conversation. And, and that's called, you know, inner parenting of inner child. I don't have time to go more into it, but we'll have a chat maybe with Niall. We'll create some other topic in the future on that. But brilliant. Thank you so much for being here. If you have any questions, drop me a line. Thank you. Thank you.